welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. God this morning we continue in our series through the epistle to the Colossians and uh, we're going to begin uh, verses 19 to 23 today focusing especially on verse 20 the wonderful biblical doctrine of reconciliation what a perfect topic for a communion Sunday in which we celebrate how we as enemies of God have been made friends of God amen and so this is the word of God let us hear it together for in him All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, speaking, of course, about our Lord Jesus Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is God's holy word. May he bring it to his people in power. Amen. You can be seated. Well, uh, you know, I I suppose you've heard the preacher's illustration more than once if you've been around churches about how the banks train their employees to recognize counterfeit money. You probably know where this old preacher's going. They don't train them by showing them lots of counterfeit money. They train them by showing them the real thing, right? Once you know the real thing, it's easy to spot the forgeries. Well, I like the illustration, but I didn't want to just give it to you the way you've heard it about 20 times. And so I researched how the banks do this. And uh, again, before I talk about banks, I need to talk about my memory bank. Because again, I forgot to dismiss the kids. (laughs) You know, this is going out online and everything else. Well, your pastor is human, and uh, I was out a week, so give give me a break. There you go. So I did research about this just to kind of find out in more detail what they do. Because it does bear on introducing what Paul is doing here, believe it or not. And uh, I discovered that when they train people in banks, uh, the government has given them a four-step system to test a genuine bill. So we're going to do that right here. I'm just going to pull a random 20. In fact, it's the only 20 out of my wallet. There's four phases to this. They call it touch, tilt, look at, and look through. So don't do this at home. You might get hurt, but I'm going to do it here. So they train them to do four things. First of all, touch the bill. And believe it or not, um, if you can touch a counterfeit bill, it's going gonna, it's gonna to feel false. And a lot of people can't even describe why it feels false. They just feel it's, it just doesn't feel right. And, and uh, it'll feel waxy. They say, actually, this one feels waxy. This is disturbing. 
I'm going to go on to the next test. Hopefully this one's going to pass. Then they go to the tilt feature, and with, with a lot of bills, if you tilt it, there's a holographic little line that they built in in the fabric of the bill, and you can actually see it, and when you tilt it in the right light, the holograph is supposed to come up with a certain set of colors, and they're trained to see the colors. And so that's hard to counterfeit. So there's the touch, then there's the tilt, and then there's the look uh, at uh, the, the money, and uh, that basically means you take it up and you put it to a light source and you look and there's supposed to be these little ghost watermarks. And on this one, yeah, Andrew Jackson, he's right in the middle. You can see him pretty clearly, but you put it up to the light, his ghost shows up on the far right. So uh, there's touch, there's tilt, there's look at through light, and then there's look through. And uh, I'm sorry, that was look through. And then finally there's look at, I got my outline wrong. And that includes just looking at it. And there's fine, fine lines that they put in these that are virtually impossible to fully counterfeit. So there's the four-step system. I'm not sure about this one. I just, it just you know, I don't know. I'm going to have to look up what do you do if you've got a counterfeit bill. But they do that because of the, the ultra-importance in our society, in our ordered society, in our society of confidence and trust, that legal tender, that that which we contract business with and we trust people over is the real thing. Now, when it comes to the teaching of the word of God, we need to know the true from the counterfeit, do we not? And what Paul is doing in this epistle, among other things, is he is giving them a touch, touch tilt test of their own to recognize false doctrine. You remember this church was under the influence of false teachers. One of the two great reasons Paul wrote the epistle, the other being just to magnify the wonders of Christ, was to show them true doctrine so they could detect false doctrine from these false teachers. He wanted them to give the touch, tilt, look at, and look through test about teaching. So that's what he's doing in this epistle. He wanted them to show them the depth of the true so that they could recognize the false pretty quickly. Now he's done that in two ways already. In addition to giving us the magnificence in verses 15 to 19 about the greatness of Jesus, he's actually given us two doctrines already in our study and shown us the true article. And one is the doctrine of redemption in verse 14, the forgiveness of sins. They were being taught by these false teachers that the only way you can earn your way past your sins, the debt that's on your head, is to earn it by following all of the false teachers' rules. Well, Paul teaches us, and we've already gone through it, that no, that's a work of God in verses 13 and 14. You don't earn it. It's been paid for, as Kevin so wonderfully prayed, and thank God for the fact that the wrath for our sins fell on God's Son. And it is not something that's earned. It's paid for. Redemption, it's a wonderful doctrine. We studied it. Verse 14. There's another one that comes up today. And uh, that is reconciliation. So he's talked about true redemption in verse 14. Then in verses uh, 15 to 19, he's talked about the true Christ as opposed to the false Christs that they were bringing into the picture and trying to present to these believers. And now there's another doctrine. It shows up in our passage today. Verse 20, it has to do with being reconciled to God. You'll see the word reconciled repeated once in, in 20 and then again in 21. But the whole sweep of the text from verses 20 through 23 is about the wonder of what it means to be reconciled to God. What is reconciliation? What is this doctrine? By the way, doctrine is only boring if you don't understand it. 
So uh, I'm going to make you on board. I'm going to help you understand it today and next week. We're going to spend two weeks on this. Today we're going to live in verse 20, and we're going to develop just the idea of reconciliation. And then verses 21 to 23 next time, we're going to go from the doctrine into the depths of what it means to the believer. But today on Communion Sunday, we're going to study this doctrine of, redemption, of reconciliation just as it is in Scripture. We're going to go to a few different places. What does the idea of reconciliation uh, deal with? It has to do with how sinful people like us who have become alienated from a perfect God because of our actions can be made friends with him. We are at enmity with God, the scripture says. We are alienated from God. And in Romans 10, we're going to find out we are actually, before we come to know Christ, enemies of God. That's something that people don't talk a lot about, but it's absolutely baseline truth you've got to understand if you understand the gospel. So reconciliation, we know the word. It means to, to, to come back into peace with one another in human terms has to do with how sinful people like us who have become alienated from a perfect God can, because of our actions, can be made friends with him. Now the Colossians were being told that indeed they were separated from God, but they were told that in order to make their way back to God, they had to find their way back to God through having all kinds of spiritual experiences that these teachers would lead them into, or performing a lot of different rituals and taking part in a lot of different uh, days or or, or celebrations and uh, rituals and ceremonies. They also had to learn some spiritual secrets, and they most of all had to learn to do certain deeds or perform certain religious actions. If that sounds familiar, that teaching happens today in so many different Christian-tied religions or cults. And so it's still a problem, isn't it? So that's what they were getting. That was the counterfeit that was being waved under their nose. So easy, they thought, to just accept the counterfeit. But the true doctrine is very easily recognizable. So what we're going to do today is we're going to, uh, as we often do, we're going to answer some questions, okay? Four questions about reconciliation, and I'm just going to teach you the doctrine from Scripture and then it, it marvelously folds into, by the way, communion. I hope communion becomes deeper and different for you as a result of this teaching. The four questions. Obviously, the first one to start with is, what does reconciliation mean? Now, I explained it earlier it, in, in just in general terms, how sinful people who are alienated from a perfect God can be reconciled. Let me give you a theologian's definition. It's from one of my favorite theologians because he speaks plain English, which that was a joke, folks. This is... Charles Ryrie, in a book called Basic Theology, you should get it. It's theology in clear language. And he defines reconciliation, the doctrine of reconciliation, we're going to open up in this way. Reconciliation means a change of relationship from hostility to harmony. Isn't that great how he puts it? A change of relationship from hostility to harmony and peace between two parties. That sounds fairly basic and fairly clear. Now, some of you may be resonating with that because the word reconciliation is really being thrown around a lot in our present social conversations, isn't it? And that has to do with social reconciliation, racial reconciliation, economic reconciliation, and all of that. Now, those are important things. But when it comes to the true understanding of reconciliation, the Bible focuses on divine reconciliation. 
not reconciliation between two human dimensions or, or groups, but between all humans to God. Why does it do that? Because it's the ultimate fundamental moral problem in our world. Why is there racism in our world today? It's because of the fallen nature of the human heart. It's because we're born sinners. We waste little time living out our sin and sin uh, influences every dimension of our relationships. They're all broken because of this fundamental issue. And the scripture teaches that before one can reconcile with others in the human level, one must be redeemed and have their heart altered by God because we're all fundamentally isolated from him and we're locked in our sin. We need to be unlocked and set free. So the first has to happen, reconciliation to God, before the others are even possible. And so that's why the focus in the scripture is on the fact that you, my friend, if you're outside of Jesus Christ today, as I was for many years, believe it or not, you stand as an enemy of God. There is a separation between you and this perfect God. So that's what reconciliation means. To repeat Dr. Ryrie, it means a change of relationship from hostility to harmony and the development of peace between two parties. Second question that comes to your mind pretty quickly is, well, then why is reconciliation necessary? Some of you who are are new to biblical teaching or or just teaching that kind of opens up doctrine a little bit, but your Christians may be a little surprised by what I just said about the fact that, that lost men and women are actually enemies of God. Because our culture and our Christian culture, to a large part, has said that people's fundamental problem is that they just don't know about God. But if they came to know about God, they would gladly move toward God. That mankind's problem is a lack of knowledge. That sounds good, but that's not biblically true. Actually, sinful men and women, lost men and women like I was, our problem went far beyond not knowing about God. I know in my life, I didn't want to know about God. That pointed to a greater issue. And everyone, fundamentally, the Bible teaches, is not separated from God just because we don't know about him. There aren't a whole group of lost men and women out there wanting to find their way back to God. That's a false statement. You may have seen it in Christian literature and publishing and even on the fronts of churches, helping people find their way back to God. That sounds appealing, but fundamentally, biblically, that's not true because you are born depraved. You are born fallen. You had no interest in finding God because sin dominates your life. And even if you were interested, you could not find your way back to God on your own. The Bible teaches that we love our sin. The Bible teaches that we love darkness. John chapter 1, John chapter 3, Romans chapter 3. The Bible teaches that not a God-seeking thought enters into our minds apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So why is reconciliation necessary? Because the Bible teaches that because of our sin, a perfect God and all human beings are in a relationship of hostility. So I'm just going to put that into your thinking box, and that may be new to you. You may think, wow, that's a really heavy thought. It's a depressing thought. Only if you, do, if you don't understand the beauty of the cross. Because though you were an enemy of God, as I'm going to show you in a minute, God came running. The wonderful story of the prodigal son, remember that? The prodigal son wanting nothing to do with his father's love and father's life and moving away in totally alienation. Who came running? It was the father. 
So why is reconciliation necessary? Because the Bible teaches that because of sin, a perfect God and all human beings are in a relationship of hostility. How do you develop that from the Bible, Pastor? Pretty easy. Look at verse 20 in your text. It says, through him to reconcile to himself all things. That assumes that until Christ came and did what he did on that cross, there was an unreconciled state between people and God. You just got to see that that's what the language assumes. We needed to be reconciled to God. Therefore, we were enemies of God. There was hostility between us. Go further whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What does that tell you we needed with God? We didn't need to just know about him. We needed to be brought back into peace with him. And Jesus did that. Reconciliation is necessary because the Bible says it. Here's another text that teaches about reconciliation that will make the lights a little brighter for you. Romans chapter 5. And look at verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were, and would you please say the word, enemies, there it is. We weren't seeking, we weren't ignorant, we were enemies. We loved our sin. And our sin had alienated us from a perfect God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more then, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Focus on the fact of what you were, believer, before Christ. You were an enemy of God, so was I. Difficult to take. That's because your ego's involved. <laughs> That's because you believe your problem is simply a lack of knowledge. No, your problem is the love of your sin if you're not without, with the Lord today. It's called the offense of the cross. Paul talked about it a lot. People love every Christian message that doesn't have a cross in it (laughs) because the cross means you're an enemy of God and you need to be reconciled. Paul said that's where we're at. We weren't just unaware of him, needing to have more knowledge, but we were at enmity, the scripture says in another place, at odds with him. Now, how did this happen, you ask? Well, it all happened in the garden. It all happened in the garden. Let me kind of image out for you the relational collapse between man and God. In the beginning, as, as you look at what the scripture says, there were two, uh, there were two fundamental you know, entities in the universe, God and, and man that he created in his image. You remember that. In his image meant given the ability to relate to God, to worship God, to obey God, to know God. In the beginning, that was a, that was a perfect relationship, I guess we could say. You could see that God was here and God was offering in his love all of his gifts to man. The created world, a full relationship without separation. God says, I've created you to pour out my love upon you. And God was looking to man with open hands, pouring out his love. Adam and Eve here in the beginning were created also and they had open hands of worship and thanksgiving. They said, we love you. We thank you for your love. We'll find all of our life in you. We'll we'll find all of our satisfaction in what you've created, and we will obey you and please you. We find our pleasure in that. So God found his pleasure in creating and loving. Man and woman found their pleasure in obeying and worshiping. And all was right with the world for just a few verses in in chapter 2 of Genesis. Do you remember this? What happened? An enemy entered in between them, a deceiver. 
who deceived man and woman into believing that God's love was insincere, that God was not all that he had said he was, and they were deceived into believing that they could take God's place, they could depend on themselves, they could be as God. And so what happened in the fundamental relationship? Man turned from grateful worship to selfish defiance. He turned his back on God, didn't he? He broke the relationship. But the moment that happened, because God is perfect and cannot be in the presence of sin and cannot affirm sin, God also had to turn his back in grief. Separation between a perfect God and a defiant humanity. That's where it all started, you see. And the Bible says from that point to this, without the Lord Jesus Christ today, you were born an enemy of God. You inherited your enemy's soul, and you have now lived in that enmity between you and God. And there's a terrible gap between people. Why is that gap unbridgeable? Because God has to hate sin, and man loves sin. This is the great tragedy of the universe's history. So that's why re reconciliation is so necessary. Well, into this great tragedy, reconciliation was accomplished. That's our third question. If reconciliation means the, 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 the change of relationship from hostility to harmony, the creating of peace between two parties, and if it's fundamentally necessary because the universe broke on its very first day, and the Bible says that all of us are born enemies of God, then the logical next question, number three, is how was reconciliation accomplished? Because praise the Lord in our text, the Bible says that God made peace through the blood of his cross, didn't he? So how was reconciliation accomplished? The great news of the New Testament is, is that it's not a text that beats people into inferiority because it calls them sinners. No, it tells them they're sinners, and then it says they can become save people. They can become reconciled. It's a book about reconciliation, not condemnation. But we need to taste the reality before we can find release. Now, it's interesting. The Bible says here in Romans chapter 5 that this great crisis between man and God in the midst of all that and from every generation from that first moment when Adam and Eve turned their back in defiance and separated themselves from God. Listen, human beings have not done a thing about it. When it comes to reconciliation, God has taken the step. This is so important. Look at verse 10 of Romans 5. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Who did the reconciling? Us or God? God did. How do we know that? Look at verse 8 of Romans 5. But God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Who took the step? Man in defiance here. God perfectly justified, based on his moral character, never to do anything about the separation in the sense that he's just and God hates sin. But God, because of the great love with which he loved us while we were still sinners, turned back toward us. Now, what did he turn back with in his hands? He came back. Now, re remember, defiant people are here. God in grief is here. 
in offense over their sin. God turns with his son in his hands. God turns with that blood-stained cross in his arms. And the Bible says that God took the step of reconciliation. God, while we were still sinners, brought his son to die for us, as was so wonderfully described earlier. To justify us by his blood, verse 9. To save us from the wrath of God, the wrath of a rightly offended God. We can be saved from that through the marvelous work of Christ. Isn't that marvelous? For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. God now turning to a still defiant man with his son in his arms and a cross offered in love. And we can be reconciled, verse 10 of Romans 5, and be saved by his life. In other words, our reconciled relationship can last forever. And instead of living in the death of sin, we can live on eternally in the life of God. Wow. No wonder verse 11 says more than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's the beauty of the gospel. Now look at verse, go back to our text. This is what Paul is summarizing here. He says in verse 19, in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God the Son, fully God, also became fully man, came to the planet, lived a perfect life, went to that cross, and through this given son, remember God giving his son to a fallen, lost world, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, this does not teach, as some uh, errorists do, that this teaches universalism. It doesn't. This teaches opportunity. It means that when Christ died on that cross, the day that Jesus died, the world changed in the sense that that day the world became savable. God, through the work of his son, has made peace by the blood of his cross and now offers it to the world. He offers it. The world became savable. Man still standing in defiance, but now God coming in love and offering his son and the opportunity for salvation arrived. The world changed that powerful day. And of course, three days later when Jesus rose from the dead to make it all official, so to speak. But you see, just knowing that, verse 20 says, peace is available. That peace has been made by the blood of the cross. But just knowing that, listen to me, does not save anyone. The Bible teaches that you must respond and be reconciled. See, the balance of Scripture doesn't teach, none of Scripture teaches, pardon me, universalism, where God essentially looks the other way and all humanity lives in eternal pleasure with him. No. It teaches that God has made peace possible, but you must come and be reconciled. You must come and respond to the gospel. That's the fourth question. How can a person be reconciled to God? And you know the simple answer if you've been under gospel teaching. By turning from their sin to their Savior. God here in love offering with his son in his arms and a cross before him, the peace of the cross. And a defiant man or woman 
moved by the gospel, turning and taking their defiant look away and coming in repentance, coming in sorrow, coming in need, saying, I realize I'm an enemy of God and I need to be made a friend of God. And then the the bound-up arms coming slowly out to a point where they're open and hoping to receive restoration. How do we know this is true? Go back to Romans 5 again. God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's Colossians 1.20. He has made peace by the blood of his cross, and it's available to you Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Notice you have to be reconciled. Do you see that? You have to be reconciled. It has to be an event. How do I know that you have to make a decision? Go down to verse 11 of Romans 5. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now, and what's the word? Received reconciliation. The work of Christ on that cross saves no one in the sense that it makes gospel deliverance open to the world, but you must turn to Christ. How can a person be reconciled to God? By turning from their sin to their Savior, this, this bound-up defiance must turn in, in humble repentance and a desiring to be restored. And that welcoming, wonderful God who's given his son for you receives you. So that's the beauty of the whole story. So it's a one-word doctrine, but it's a world full of truth, isn't it? It's the whole story of the universe and one statement. Well, let me close before we move into communion together with an obvious what they call application question. What's the action message for you and for me? Well, if you're not a believer, become one. (laughs) Yeah? If you're not a believer, become one. This is the greatest news the planet's ever received. People who are at enmity with God, enemies of God, living in personal and spiritual ruin with eternal lostness staring them in the face. There's now a way of peace available. Oh, if you're not a believer, become one by recognizing your sin. Maybe you're that person right now. You know that I've pegged you. You're defiant. You have been all your life. You know there's a God, and you've defied him all your life. But maybe the Holy Spirit is melting your heart right now and you're seeing something for the very first time under the teaching of the word and the moment of God's power and you're saying, that's me. But I don't want it to be me anymore. I know I'm an enemy of God. I know I'm headed for hell. Oh, but I want peace. Turn. Bow your head (laughs) in submission and repentance And open your hands and say, oh, Lord, I need the peace that comes from your son. In that moment, you can have it. So if you're not a believer, become one. If you are a believer, tell one. (laughs) Tell someone who doesn't know how to find peace with God how indeed to do that. Last text, and it's 2 Corinthians chapter 
5. This is another great passage on reconciliation. We'll visit it again next week. But it says in verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God. Who did the reconciling? God did. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself. There it is. We didn't do it. God did it. All this is from God. This wonderful plan of salvation was God's great heart. God's great plan, God's great movement, God's great work through his marvelous son. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and look at this and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What's that? What I'm doing right in front of you. Sharing the great story of lostness and peace. I do it in a public context like this, but all of us have been given this ministry to go to others and who are lost and defiant like we were, and tell them that they can be reconciled. It's our ministry. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, believers, the message of reconciliation. So if you're not a believer, become one. If you are a believer, you need to go tell one. Tell a lost person about this wonderful gospel story. He makes it even more pointed in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul was actually speaking to some, two groups of believers in that church. They were true Christians. He's saying, you have the ministry of reconciliation, but there's some among you who are not yet saved. (laughs) In fact, right now, Paul is saying, by the way, to you, those of you that are playing games with God and you've never truly come to Christ and you're hanging around church there in Corinth and putting on a religious show because you like the music and the people are nice and whatnot and it kind of improves your status and assuages your guilt, be done with that. Paul says some of you yourselves need to be reconciled to God. Some of you yet need to come to peace. But once you've come to peace, verse 20, you are an ambassador for Christ. And God makes his appeal through you. It doesn't say some super Christians are ambassadors for Christ. It doesn't say people called into full-time ministry are ambassadors for Christ. It doesn't say people in a mission field are ambassadors for Christ. We believe that for a long time, haven't we? No, it's all-inclusive. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. And God making, God making his appeal through us. The, uh, Reichen, the theologian, said God was the author of of reconciliation. Christ was the agent of reconciliation and we are the ambassadors. (laughs) No one comes to know under the sovereign plan of God, this wonderful story of peace, lest it be brought. Romans says, how can they hear lest they have a preacher? And a preacher means anybody who bears the story. So I hope you're moved by that today and you understand. How would you not be willing to share the message of peace with people who are enemies of God and being broken by it. Well, what's the connection to communion as we ready our hearts to celebrate the cross today? Well, you know that at this church, we teach that communion is for believers only. That may be a little different from where you've been coming from. You might come from different religious tradition or places where it seemed if you walked into the building, you you take communion. (laughs) No, we we have believers only communion. Why? Because it only makes sense for believers. You see, it represents a payment made to make peace 
And it only makes sense for people who are at peace with God through Christ. If you're not at peace with God through Christ, if you don't know the Lord yet, communion is a dishonest act. (laughs) It makes no sense for you because you're not at peace with God but you're pretending you might be. And that's why we encourage people who are exploring the gospel, but who honestly are not yet committed to Christ, let communion pass. You've got something to consider, first of all, and that is, are you really at peace with God at all? But listen, if you are, then communion just blossoms in all of its beauty, doesn't it? That's why I said, as I began this message, I hope there's an even deeper appreciation from communion at the close of this message than there was in the beginning because communion is a picture of reconciliation. God has made peace with you through the blood of his cross. The blood in our hands and the broken body in our hands. It's a beautiful thing. So communion makes beautiful sense for people of peace. So rejoice in it today, beloved, as we receive it together.